everyone, Zane the Penmeister here, back with our third episode of Behind the Screen. Today with me are my wonderful guest, Cameron, who, of course, has joined us before. And we have a newcomer this time. Say hello, Amber. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. And uh, can you tell us where we can find you all? Well, (laughs) I can be found all over the place. I am, of course, here on Of Dice and Pen. I am uh, also on a podcast called Sorry Honey, I Have to Take This. I'm doing another podcast that's rolling up shortly called uh, Undefined Depths. Um, And... Also, another one called Chatter from the Underground. Uh, also, all over the place, uh, uh, YouTube, Facebook, you name it. And you, Cameron? Uh, I can also be found uh, here on of Dyson Pen. I can also be found on Undefined Depths, when that's released as well. Um, and also, you can find me on Twitter, at CLH Harrison. Awesome, awesome. Now, let's go ahead and get right into it. You've both DM'd before, haven't you? I know Cameron has. Yes. Okay. So this question is for both of y'all, then. How do you guys handle splitting the party as a DM? Uh, so I... Because I mostly play online these days, um, I actually do this thing where we split channels. Uh, so if the party is split, especially if there's potential for metagaming between the two groups, I will move whoever is not actively in the group to another channel. Uh, or I'll split them between two or three channels, depending on how many different groups there are. And I'll bounce between channels until everybody's back together again. So, I tend to not really have parties that split, uh, which is rare, uh, at least not in the adventure sense, or not late enough to warrant Amber's uh, idea of splitting up the channels, splitting up into different channels. Often, if they're investigating something, some people will go to different places, they'll figure stuff out there and then they'll all group together and we'll all just role play and go okay you now know everything that was discussed um the only other time really that i've had parties split up is um if they're going to go buy stuff at markets and if we do that i just randomly assign a number to each group and then I say to a random player, okay, choose a number. And that party will go first and then another number, okay, then it's this party and so on until they all meet up again. Awesome. And in games where your players and needed party splits, did it ever go wrong at one point splitting the party? (laughs) Oh, goodness, all the time. Um, So my primary game is 
Delta Green, which is kind of a X-Files meets uh, Call of Cthulhu type thing. Um, and I'm actually in a scenario right now where we split the team in two. Two of us went to the morgue, and I ended up recruiting one of the NPCs to kind of do some side work for us because we needed some help. The group that we left unattended went and um, managed to shoot up at college. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happened. Um, to be fair, they were actually shooting a monster, but the monster was in the middle of a college party. And uh, my character had to go clean up that mess on top of everything else and figure out how to keep the two of them from getting arrested. <laughs> and you, Cameron? Uh, it's been 84 years since I was a player. Uh, <laughs> I'm not true. What do you mean? You play on Player Tuesday. <laughs> well, we've yet to split the party there. Um, uh, except for the market, I, except for that one market bit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I genuinely can't remember a moment where I've been in a party that's split and it's gone um, where it's gone foobar. Um, I can remember plenty of games where it has for other players, and I've been the DM. Um, I've just remembered a Call of Cthulhu game where they were investigating a uh, chemical uh, o uh, chemical plant's office building, and they split up investigating, looking for something, only for one of the players to be, well, to be sucked into a never-ending darkness and lost in time and space. That definitely sounds like Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That also sounds like a really big problem. And I just looked at him and said, I'm so sorry, you're going to need a new character. That would be an interesting concept, though, for a character, to have him crawl out from those depths and see what he's become. I think I'm working on that with my meta character in my Delta Queen scenarios. Yep, yeah. I, I could definitely agree, Kinvin, that I know what the character is. <laughs> oh, here's a juicy question. How do you guys feel about dungeon crawling? Uh, so... This is where I date myself. I have been playing Dungeons & Dragons for over 30 years now. I started with First Dead. So Dungeon Crawlers, it's the core of gameplay for me. It's where everything started. And while it's not really something I get into these days, because GMs don't really run that way anymore, scenarios don't work that way, um, it's still got those core memories for me. It's still got that. This is where everything started. This is the beginning. This is the basics. Um, so when I get the chance, I do love to dive into just a good old 
dungeon crawler, map everything out, figure out where the thing is that we need to grab, and get out of there. Uh, so I've only really been in two dungeon crawls before that I can th that I would classify as dungeon crawls. Um, one of them was an actual well. None of them were actually dungeons in the sense of there were people in prison there. Uh, one was we got into the Tomb of Annihilation. Uh, we were playing that module. Um, and we also, uh, and the, I was in a private game of Curse of Strahd and the, uh, spoiler alert for uh, Strahd, very early on in the campaign, there's a mansion that you come across, and there was quite a bit of dungeon crawling in that. Uh, we nearly lost a player in that one, which was fun. Um, but uh, honestly, I if the dungeon crawl is done well, I really enjoy it because it's a nice, it's a nice little way of getting the party to bond. I'm because now we're because it's such a tight space we're working in, and everybody gets a chance to show off what they can do. Um, and to give credit where the credit's due, my D, uh, DMs for both those campaigns were really good. So. Um, I definitely would love to do my own dungeon crawl at one point. I have one dungeon trap that I keep doing, and no matter how many times I do it, everyone keeps falling for the same one. I, I actually have a really fun dungeon crawler story. Um, this is not mine. A friend of mine, uh, one of my best friends, used to GM uh, early on. And again, this is back in the days when you've literally sitting at a table with graph paper and the players are having to map out the dungeon as they go. So they get to the end of the dungeon and there's a goblin standing at the shore. He's in there and he's like, hello, password please. The players sit there and they're going back and forth, chatter over the table for the next half hour trying to figure out what the password is. And eventually the GM gets fed up and says, look at the map. And if you look at the map, it spells out the word hi. <laughs> Sometimes it's just the simplest answer. Um, it really is. I feel like now I should share my one of my favorite uh, puzzles for a dungeon crawl. Um, this is one that Amber has experienced, and I'd already told her about it, and when she realized what happened, this was the angriest she has ever been at me. <laughs> what happened? Probably, yeah. Uh, ten items line, uh, uh, you get like ten levers or idols or something, two rows of five on either side, or even just ten doors. Two, uh, two sets of five on a corridor. Players walk up and open each door. 
and the doors can either be a random door into a small room that does nothing, a set of staircases, or a slide that automatically sends them to another location. Every single time I have done this, what I have done is I have looked up a Snakes and Ladders board and I have put each ladder as a set of stairs and each snake as a slide and I never ever tell the players which level they're on. And for those of us in the U.S., that shoots and ladders. Yeah. So So eventually what happens is someone tries the 10th item and they realize, oh, we just keep doing the 10th one and we won't struggle. And after every single time I've gone, would you like to see the map? And every single time I have gotten the best reaction of, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> oh, I figured it out the first time I hit a slide. That sounds very funny. It really does. It's not my, it's not my original idea. I got it from Ivan Van Norman uh, and his paranoia one-shot he did many years ago for Geek and Sundry. I still use it because it's such a brilliant trap. A puzzle. Well, when it comes to puzzles and everything for your campaigns, you know you have to keep little cheat sheets and info pages, right? So along that, so when it comes to info pages and cheat sheets, what kind of stuff do you put behind your DM screen for that, for your sessions? Um, so obviously first things first, NPC stat blocks, that is the absolute hardest for me. Um, because I run Delta Green, Mm -hmm. I wing a lot of stuff. My players tend to do these stupidest, crazy things. And I'm sitting here, like, I planned for 10 different things. Why did you do the one thing I didn't plan for? Every time. Every single time. Um, but I, I think a good example is my favorite one run. Um, I've got the map. I've got the different character stat blocks. Um, and the map is actually two versions of the map. There's a modern day one, and then there's the one where I send them back in time. Uh, so that gets a little convoluted sometimes. But there's also... Uh, details about different player NPCs, and a lot of the NPCs, there's two variations of them, uh, depending on how I roll originally, uh, because the bad guy in the scenario isn't determined until the scenario starts. Um, so, depending on the game, it will involve uh, one thing I'll keep is a list of names uh, because every single player group I have ever had will insist on names for the characters. Um, so as soon as I mention it's an elf, 
I immediately start looking at the elf names I've got, looking for one that's reasonably pronounceable. Dwarf? Same. Uh, goblin? Yeah, okay. And then if it's a human, I just find a random place to steal a name from. Uh, if the characters, if because I tend to base civilizations off of real-world locations, I will look up the real-world location as an, uh, in a name generator and go, okay, name, 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 uh, to do that. Um, other things I'll include are any important NPCs uh, to the scenario I'm running, uh, or any that are important to the location. Um, and they'll have a little bit of what they're like, who they are, that sort of thing. Um, another thing that I will also have is the player's initiative for combat. Uh, so I will always know what their initiative is if it's a game like Delta Green where we tend to just use the um, dexterity. Yeah. Uh, so that way I can go, okay, this player's there, this player's there, this monster's there, and it makes it move a lot more swiftly. Um, so that tends to be what's behind my screen. Yeah, I also guess. the pile of dice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For me, it's the sack. <laughs> oh, I I wish it was just. Uh, so this is just what I keep on my desk. I have two very large dice bags as well. <laughs> oh, I'm. I've got my desk, which is right here. Then I've got this giant ass table to the right that has everything I'm ever gonna need for this. I've got my because what I what I've got behind my screen is everything you've said. I've also got random encounters. I got basic info on the region. I have NPC cards. I have spell cards. I have, of course, the the books. You're gonna need them on hand just in case. Yeah. Uh, mine are not far from hand either. And then just yeah. as a personal woohoo to me. I've got the bad dice chair, and I've got the good dice chair. Yep. And they come with the dunce I... and the crown. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. And then I like to have my players' armor classes and HP back here, too. Yes, as well. That's always a good thing to have. I don't think any of the games I run have ACs involved, so I thankfully don't have to worry about that. It's just hit points. Well, here's one. How much inspiration from other media do you take to make campaigns or even characters for a campaign? I played the fifth. <laughs> There's no judgment here. Mr. Mr. Scooby-Doo as a scenario. That sounds like fun. It it was hilarious. Unfortunately, I only listened to it because I had company that day, but it was it was fun to listen to. Um, I actually don't. I draw from history. 
very weird history, but still history. You mean like the city that saved itself from being sieged by making all the soldiers bread? Uh, no. So, I live in an area where there is a lot of history dating back to pre-Civil War, uh, even to the time of the Conquistadors. I'm West Coast USA, I'm willing to say that much. Uh, and one of the things we have here, uh, we used to have a Japanese internment camp back World War II. Most people, even the ones who grew up here, don't realize that we have a mall that was built on top of where the internment camp was. Oh, joy. So I used that. Um, another thing I'm working on is Hawaii. There was, you know, there is this island that was basically a leper colony for decades, you know, so I'm trying to see how I can use that. Uh, there's a Civil War fort not far from here. I used that one. That one is a favorite of players. So. Yeah. I, so. Yeah. yeah. I will draw from anywhere. History. Um, media. The, the Scooby-Doo one was uh, was just a fun idea because I was like, this could make a great Delta Green scenario, and it did. Um, for those interested, it was Scooby-Doo on, on, on Zombie Island. Uh, that was actually one of the better movies, I believe. Yeah. It, it was that weird, like, two thousand. Uh, late 90s, early 2000s period where Scooby-Doo was being, where they basically went, you know what, what if Scooby-Doo actually went up against real monsters? Mm -hmm. uh, there weren't any masks. Uh, which, honestly, I grew up on those movies, so I will happily rip those off. Um, Simple Plan still did the best intro for Scooby-Doo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I will agree with that. In terms of scenarios, um, I will look at historical context. I will um, look at major things going on in my world because I overplan to the nines. Um, I will throw in a, one. I always make, like, when I have a major location, I always make two or three side quests, as it were, uh, in a long-term campaign, and they're either going to be fairly goofy or quite serious. So it could be that... Um, so, for example, one play, one city I created... Uh, the local lord was concerned that uh, someone was stalking his daughter. Um, turns out what had happened was the lord had chased away an orc tribe many years ago, and that's why he was made a lord. And as punishment, uh, Hag um, taught an orc runt that was left behind how to be 
a gentleman and how to be a courtly individual and had put a curse that the daughter of the Lord was going to be courted by and eventually fall in love with the Orc. The Orc never did anything bad. Everything he was doing was to win the favor of the Lord. He, was he being never a perfect gentleman. <laughs> exactly. And the way that he was trying to win the affection was he was chopping down trees and giving firewood as a way to show he had wealth. And the daughter wasn't actually concerned about this person because she would give the firewood out to the locals and no one ever raised any hatred towards her for it. And the the party decided, you know what, the guy, the Lord's a bit of a a bit of an idiot. We don't like him. So they actually helped the orc and the daughter meet and they had a wonderful relationship. Um that's the sort of thing that I will do to cheer players up. So that is kind of adorable. It is. Yeah. And I will do all sorts of scenarios. Uh, I had one where the play. my favorite thing to do is to put the players up against someone who they think is going to be like this extremely dangerous battle scenario. Uh, it just turns out he's a massive, massive pain in the boss. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when it comes to creating characters from media, so my my favorite character to play in Delta Green is actually based off of a character from a book series called Alex the Fae. It's by Claudia Hall Christian. Um, she does military suspense. And... She's she's kind of a badass with a uh, hero complex of I have to save everybody. Um, and when she fails, she is really, really hard on herself. Um, she also has a tendency to adopt random kids that end up in as orphans in scenarios. It's kind of hilarious. She's got three kids now. Uh, but... Um, there's also for not quite for Ray, but the other Kenku of play in another scenario with my high school friends. Uh, there is also a bit of media influence there. She is based off of a combination of characters from the Bulgarian series. So you guys feel like you do draw a lot from media and other sources. To help you with your campaigns and character creation? Oh, definitely. I mean, there's no such thing as a uh, new idea. So why not go based off of the knowledge you already have? Yeah. Um, John Straczynski, uh, the creator of Babylon 5 and Changeling, uh, puts a really good um, thing in his uh, book, 
uh, becoming a writer, staying a writer, which is you take an original idea, well, take an idea and pitch it to two people and they will come up with very different ways of doing it. The way he, the thing he used was a very simple scenario. Uh, it is Cold War, so it's set in the Cold War and a rogue US operative accidentally triggers strategic air command or, well, they purposely trigger strategic air command and now um, a bomber is on its way to drop its nukes on Moscow and the US is trying to stop the nukes hitting Moscow. One of those stories is Failsafe, which is a gritty, uh, dark drama with a lot of tension, with a lot of um, will it happen, won't it happen. The other film is Doctor Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, which is the complete opposite in tone, but it's the same film in that regard. So if you ever feel like your campaign is drawing too much from, uh, or your scenario is drawing too much from its inspiration, don't worry. Let's hope the players don't take that it's the Scooby-Doo movie when you use the same name as the island. <laughs> oh, they had you figured out in the first 10 seconds. Now, diverting a little bit off of that topic, what would your ideal campaign setting be as a player? Oh, don't ask me that. <laughs> um, so I, I have to plug my high school group for this one. Our GM has created this amazing world. Um, and basically every hundred years, this one plane has these games where these champions, each of them is a champion for a different color dragon. And they go off on quests and different things to try to determine who is the best champion. And it's just, it is a crazy, immersive world. We've been in this world for four years now, and there's still so much to explore. Um, but more than that, just the NPCs, the storyline. We own three taverns at the moment. Uh, there, there are a couple of times where we do side sessions just for bookkeeping. It has gotten so crazy. Um, but it's fun. And having something to always explore, knowing there's always something different. And knowing that he allows us to cross planes and go into different planes as long as we return um, allows us a lot of freedom to do whatever we want, which is so much fun. You know, you know what that sounded like to me at the very beginning when you said they were champions for dragons? It sounded a lot like fairy tale. That, knowing, knowing the GM for that, it may very well be where they started the idea. Yeah, it's a really good idea, yeah. What about you, Cameron? Now you've had a little time to think on it. Uh, 
honestly, I DM so much that I I don't really know what my kind of campaign would be. Um, I think for me, the campaign, my ideal campaign as a player, and my ideal campaign as a DM are two very different things. Um, as a player, I like, I like, there's similarities. I like big open worlds. Um, I like the fact that there are things happening outside of our little story. And if it builds up towards uh, the big story that's going on, that's perfect. But if it doesn't, then that's fine. If there's, so for example, I have played in Simbarum, and there's uh, the humans settling in uh, as their kingdom is dying in the south, and the giant massive forest in the north, and there's the underlying tension between them, the wild things that live there, and the elves. Uh, but your story won't really have any major influence. You'll learn stuff about the world, but there's no real major influence. Uh, you can't really influence that much. As a DM, I try to make my stories so that at some point you do actually influence it slightly. So it could be that there's two major powers that hate one another and they're about to go to war. The players will have, might have an opportunity where I go, okay, I'm going to put this little crumb here. If you take it, uh, your storyline is now going to start in your main story, as it were, is going to influence the relations, and it's possible that they end up bringing an end to the hostilities between the two powers. I think if you give the player, um, I think as a player in a DM, if you have a game where you do something big. That is a lot of fun. Doesn't matter what it is, if it's big, as a player, you will feel really good about that, and as a DM, you'll feel really good about that. I, I will admit, as a GM, uh, part of the reason I run Delta Green is because it's a real world, which means that there is a lot less work for me to do. Um, but it's, I mean, there's still things, there's like a ton of research that goes into it, maps. Um, I have to look at real places that exist, streets and whatnot, because players going to ask that. But at the same time, I don't have to build it from scratch. So it has its benefits, it has its downfalls, but uh, I like that a lot of it's already done for me. Yeah, I can see how having it, a lot of it done would be very helpful and I can see what you're saying Karen 
how you enjoy or your party while your story is very important to y'all and while you're going through it, it's like the center of your machine. You're really just a simple cog that's going while everything else is functioning normally. Yeah. Yeah. Now, was there ever a time where you had where you left a group because the campaign you were in, you were in wasn't really going away you were expecting or were comfortable with, or was going against the characteristics of the character you wanted to play? Uh, so there's a very easy answer for me on this one. Um, now, needless to say, as a female in games. There have been times where it's been difficult just because girls really aren't considered to be gamers all the time, uh, especially 20, 30 years ago. You know, we were kind of like, why are you here? Um, Hilariously, the problem was not with one of those tables. The problem was with a table that was all female except for the GM. We were playing in a, it was a Star Wars campaign. Mm-hmm. My first tip off that this was not a group for me should have been the fact that everybody else was playing a Jedi. I was playing a scoundrel. Um, the day I left the table was when everybody went off on me for playing the character. We were trying to get some information, and I got fed up, so I shot the guy in the knee. I'm like, no, you're going to give us the information we need. As a scoundrel perfectly reasonable it's what you'd expect uh but because everybody else was playing a jedi they were uncomfortable with the fact that i was actually playing a scoundrel as a scoundrel uh so i left that table and uh now refuse to play with all female groups (laughs) have you ever had a situation like that cameron um, as a player, I have never, um, I've never felt particularly uncomfortable at all, felt like my character was being punished for something. Um, in my early days as a DM, I definitely was making mistakes, um, and... Every DM does early on. Yeah. Uh, whilst learning the craft, there were definitely there were definitely things that I could have done better. Um, I know of games that I've played where players I know of game I can think of games where I've played where players have had disagreements and both have stepped out. Um, I will not. Uh, name names for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I I only my thing is if you are uncomfortable uh, because of something I've done, please tell me. Um, I don't mean in like an offhand way of hey, that was a little bit. Hey, that was a little bit. I because I have a bad read on that sort of thing. I need you to 
the and I'm not saying this to defend myself. I'm saying this to let you know that I need to be told flat out, hey, I didn't like that. Because I'm big enough to go, oh, I'm so sorry, I did not realize. As soon as you tell me flat out, can we not do this? I will never do it again. That's not... I I can confirm that. Cameron is very good about that. Um, But... He's still learning to read people, so occasionally stuff does uh, fly under the radar. Yeah. I'll be honest, I have the same sentiments about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Same. I always encourage players to do it with me. Yeah. I always encourage players. I always tell players in my campaigns, tell me directly. And I know a lot of people aren't comfortable Mm -hmm. about that because it can feel like direct confrontation. And it is direct, but it's not a confrontation because I'm not going to fight it. It's directly telling me. That's my way of looking at it is you're not confronting me, you're telling me directly. And if you tell me directly, then I can work on it. I'm not going to fight it because if you're telling me that you're uncomfortable, that's my responsibility to work on it because you need to feel comfortable at my game. And if I'm not doing that for you, I'm not doing my job as a DM. Yeah. Um, I, I actually have a different way of handling that. I'm in my social groups. I tend to be the mom. Uh, I'm pretty sure you guys have started to notice that <laughs> by now. Um, so, I make it a point to once a month or whatever, just check in with everybody one-on-one. Hey, how are you doing? How is everything going? Are there factors that I don't know about in real life that might be affecting this? Or just, is there something I've done that maybe I could change to make you more comfortable? Um, and I don't just do that with groups I'm running. I've actually occasionally stepped into that role for groups where I'm a player And I know there's players who have problems that aren't comfortable going to the GM. So if they talk to me one-on-one, I can sit down with GM and be like, so we've got this. How can we address it? Yeah. I'm at a loss for words. That's, uh... I mean... Wow. This is also very good on this it's also very good advice for beginning DMs. Yes, definitely. Take the time to talk to your players one-on-one, even if it is an uncomfortable conversation. Uh, just a, hey, we addressed this, or I did this this way. Was that okay with you? In the future, are you okay if I do this again? Or do you want me to address it differently? Yeah, I can agree wholeheartedly to all of that. Because at the end of the day, it's all about having fun. If you're uncomfortable, you're not having fun, right? Exactly. I, I want my players, I want my fellow players to have fun, and I want the GMs to have fun. Um, people tend to forget that the GM is as much a player as we are. 
they just have a different role. Now, this is going to go a bit off topic, I think, but it does play into a the group dynamic a little bit. How do you feel about a short one-shot being used in a session zero to figure out party balance? Yes. I like Very that. Much so. Especially with a group of players that don't know each other. Um, I will say this, like, again, with my high school group, we've known each other for 25 years now, if not more. <laughs> I'm getting old. Um, you know, so for us, it's kind of a, we just fall back into old patterns, old habits. There's inside jokes that have been there forever. But because I run a lot of one-shot scenarios or uh, things, I play online a lot. And when I'm running a longer campaign, especially if it's a group of players that have never been there together, I'll do a one-shot before the actual scenario just a kind of warm-up session make sure, one, that everybody melts. Two, that there's no problem players that I need to address. Um, and three, just that everybody is going to have fun with this group. Because sometimes the group dynamic is you've got this great group, but there's this one player who's quieter than everybody else, and there's no way for them to fit in. A session zero one-shot is a great way to figure that out and how to balance that. Definitely something to do with new players. I have a regular set of players, um, and I know their behaviors and try to accommodate them. Um, but if I get new players in, I will definitely be taking that as a future operation, future idea um, of doing a session zero one shot. Because I feel like that is actually a really good idea. I'm surprised I never thought of that. Yeah, that's uh, something my buddy told me about the other day when I was talking to him because he was telling me about this uh, this tower dungeon campaign he's doing. He told me, yeah, we did this one shot beforehand in session zero. We are making the characters to figure out our group dynamic. We found out but this one guy's character, he really didn't fit in the group that well, so we tweaked it a little bit and was able to get that group dynamic down. And I was like, what? That, that's Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a... Yeah, like I tend to be that quiet player. So for me, Session Zero is great because it lets me sit everybody down and be like, hey, I need you guys to turn it down just a bit so I can actually get a word in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or the opposite is like, hey, you guys don't have to wait for me every time. You can ask to do something. You can jump in if you need to. It's all right. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's crazy, but it's it is a really great idea. Um, another friend of mine, Hinchiems, what he does is he actually does a session zero and a session zero point five. And the session zero is actually one-on-one -on -one with each player mm -hmm. where we go through and we're like figuring out their background. And so, you know, this player has been around for this long. So 
in X year. What did they do? Let's figure that out. Let's figure out if they got anything from that, learned anything, skill points type thing. And then 0.5 is we take all of those backgrounds and we throw the party together for just a little short session. Um, uh, now, when we get past that session zero and 0 0.5, when it comes to the actual beginning of a campaign, do you as players or as a dungeon master, do you prefer to start your campaigns at level one or do you like to be at a higher starting level when you start a campaign? Uh, so as a player, I do like to be a higher starting level just because I feel like I'm actually effective. Mm -hmm. I love Dungeons and Dragons, but level one, you can't do shit. Um, you know, three, three, four is about where you start feeling like you're actually effective in getting something done. Um, although I will fully admit the high school group, I dove in a year and a half into the campaign. We were already level 10 at the time, which was pretty awesome. <laughs> Being able to dive in. We're level 14 now, and... I am playing a Kenku Druid Circle of Stars. And I will warn you, at level 14, it kind of gets broken, but in really good ways. Like, we, we do some crazy combat. Nobody's died. Um, and I do some really goofy things. I think last week I kind of uh, managed to disappear because somebody was looking for me. And then went and talked to the rest of the party, and everybody's looking around like, where'd she go? <laughs> Um, that being said, the games I run, I don't run Dungeons and Dragons for personal reasons. Delta Green doesn't have levels. You have skill points that you level up. And you start with, I'm really good at this set of skills, but not so great at this set of skills, which is an awesome way to approach things. Is it a D6 um, style game? Is it based on it's the actually percentile. Ooh. Yeah. Um, and say you've got 40% the skill. The goal is to roll 40 or lower, which is a pretty decent chance. Mm -hmm. You're also not rolling against some number that the GM has. You're rolling against your own skills and abilities. So you know we have to meet every time. Yeah. Um, it's honestly, it's, it makes a lot of sense. I I will have to run a one shot for you guys at some point so you can see how it works. Definitely. Um, for me, I if it's new players, I will start them at level one, um, just so that they can get to grips with. Oh, someone's Wi-Fi. Oh, welcome back. Uh, My Wi-Fi glitched there for a second. <laughs> oopsie. Uh, so, uh, if they're new players, I will start them at level one, uh, just so they get the basic mechanics uh, under their belts, but they will level very quickly to um, a higher level. So, for example, one of my go-to scenarios for a beginner's campaign 
is the um, there is something in the sewer that is causing the sewer to block, and the players get offered the opportunity to go into the sewer, take care of the blockage, and that will last about one session. Um, my players went in, found the gelatinous cube that was blocking the sewer. The gelatinous cube didn't land a single hit before the barbarian cleaved it in half. Nice. That is pretty funny. So, because I... It, Go ahead, sorry, I'm just thinking to myself. Yeah. So the brilliant thing about that is it introduces a bit of roleplay because I tell the players, you know, you're in the market square where the explosion of the sewer gases happens. What do mm-hmm. you... What, what's your character doing? It gives them an incentive to join because someone goes, hey, if you help figure out what happened, we'll pay you. Um, it gives them a bit of a dungeon crawl mm-hmm. because they've got to go through the sewers. And it introduces them to doing investigation and it introduces them to combat. Unless... Uh, and also trap, uh, because I, uh, because the gelatinous cube is invisible until it moves, and the barbarian nearly got swallowed by the gelatinous cube uh, until they rolled a perception check enough to actually see it. As they walk right into the square. Nice. Cue six players all using first level attacks and the cube rolling a natural one on its initiative. <laughs> that cube didn't turn, did it? <laughs> no. No. Not really. Speaking of role play. When can role-playing get to be too much in a campaign? Uh, ERP. (laughs) Hands down. Um, There there have been a few scenarios I've been in where it has definitely gotten too much. Um, One that always comes to mind is high school. Uh, There were, of course, the group of us that had been already playing for years. And unfortunately, the game was run by teachers, so they weren't allowed to turn anyone away. Mm. And that game was a little too big. By a little too big, I mean 20 people. Um, it was crazy. They they actually, we split into like three or four groups at the end of the day. Um, it was the only way we managed. But somehow, one of the freshman new players decided to latch on to us seniors who were more experienced. Us seniors, we had all been gaming together for years, so we knew how each other worked, and it was kind of usual party dynamics. Mm-hmm. And this one freshman threw everything off so far because of how he roleplayed. He was 
one, very annoying. Ev was not listening to feedback. But two, he kept trying to initiate PvP, and that's just, that's a no-go for me in games. Like, unless it is specifically designed for a PvP, as a player, you should not be trying to RP that at all. Unless it's like a gladiatorial tournament where it's non-lethal, and there's a prize at the end kind of thing. Yeah, no, he was, like, trying to poison us or murder us in our sleep or that type of thing, and that was just, no. He did not listen to the judgment of the Oratish Mechanista and he's cutting out, did he? (laughs) No. Um, I, I, so I know Laya's been very flirty. Uh, and very, very pushing the line. I, if you tell me to, if you told me now, can you turn it down? I would. Um, I am trying to turn it down somewhat as well, um, because I know that some people aren't comfortable with it, and as long as it's not explicit, I think we're okay. Yeah. My rule, my rule when it comes to romance in roleplay is if it's between a PC and an NPC, we will, if, if we get a bedroom scene, it's going to be the door closes and we fade to black. Um, yeah, I'll agree with you there. A scene which uh, comes in in next week's episode, which I will not mention, there is something like that. And that yes. is probably the farthest I will go in that kind of scenario. Yeah. Yeah, like, it, it was a lot of good ribbing from other players. Like, yeah. I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was... It, it's when it's fun and silly and whatnot, that's fine. Yeah. Flirting, I'm okay with that. The occasional reference. It, it's when it gets explicit that I'm not okay with it. Yeah. Um, and if it's player and player... I will sit those two players down with me in that chat, and I will say, you're going to have this, we're going to set boundaries, because I can control the NPC's reaction to the PC trying to romance them. I can't control the player's romance. That has to happen between them, and if one player says, if the player who's being flirted with says, actually, I don't really want to do that, their opinion, their request, their opinion, whatever you want to call it, is valid, and it needs to be respected. Mm-hmm. I Yeah, it kind of falls under the two yes, one no rule. Yeah. Um, and this is something that players, all, uh, that DMs, myself included, need to be aware of as well when it comes to NPCs flirting with PCs. If a NPC gets told no, they have to stop. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think one of the things that people don't really factor in a lot, though, is the comfort of the rest of the group as this is happening. Yeah. Um, most of the time it's okay, but um, again, I'm coming at this from the mindset of I'm a female player and I have seen times when cases like that have been used to kind of flirt with female players in real life 
And sometimes it's okay. Um, I've seen it work out really well. (laughs) Um, But I've also seen it cause a lot of problems. Um, Another thing as well I will add is I agree with the PvP being a no-no. If players... If a player character has, like, if one of the player characters in our game is going to call out Liar for being the loot goblin, um, that's fine. That's I'm I'm waiting for the day someone says, "Why are you always looting the bodies?" Because Liar's got the got the reason why, and that's going to be a great role play moment. Um, yeah, there's only going to be four. I, there's only going to be four char- player characters that'll probably ask. Yeah, because we we both got um, patches like good on you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, thank you. Shiny things. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to um, PvP, the only time I will do PvP is if um, is if they have. So I mentioned this in. Uh, uh, in passing, one of my favorite things to give barbarians is the berserker axe weapon from the DM's guide. Um, that what happens for those who aren't familiar with this weapon is, if the wielder that's attuned to the barbarian uh, to the berserker axe gets damaged, they have to roll a DC 15 wisdom save. If they fail it, they go berserk, and they have to spend their next turn attacking with the axe. Anything, any creature within 60 feet of the barbarian, of the berserker... It usually just goes for the closest, right? They usually go for the closest, but if all the enemies are defeated... It doesn't stop. It's only when the uh, the wielder is more than 60 feet away from a target. If there is an ally and they are 55 feet away, the next turn is going to be spent rushing to the ally, getting ready to attack. That is the only time I will ever do PvP is if a cursed weapon has affected the player, or they've been possessed by a ghost. I will admit there are. Zane, you're going to ask something else. Oh no, yes. I had a, oh, I had a story. I'm a, about what you were saying about the, you know how a player character flirting with another player character, but they're really flirting with the uh, player themselves. I had one of those happen and. My high school group, well, I say group, it was an actual club with like 60 plus members. Um, We had these two players that would flirt together in game. A couple weeks later, they get together, and now they're married and have a kid. So, um, Cameron and I have been together for a year now. And it actually started out with his character flirting with mine in game. Uh, although we did we did talk behind the scenes of yeah, uh, mm-hmm. just figuring out what was really going on. Uh, so 
make, make sure, sure we were all on the same page and everybody was comfortable. Yeah. yeah. Man, now I've lost track of where I was going to say. <laughs> Let's just go to the next question. Um, uh, how do you guys feel about puzzles and traps being used in a campaign? Not even just a dungeon. Yes. Yeah. I I love a good puzzle. Um, I I love having something to dig into and figure out. Uh, Cameron's seen me as a player, and I have this innate ability to find that one person who's going to give me the clue to solve everything and ask that one question that's going to get me the answer. And we don't know how I do it, but inevitably I do it. Um, but it's it's fun, and halfway through I'm like, oh, that's how this is going to work. Okay, let's do it. Um, so, you know, I love puzzles. I love figuring things out and putting things together. I am not so great at creating them. <laughs> I I love puzzles um, as a player as well because it's always a fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a DM, it's a great way to plan ahead. Uh, if the players have rushed a bit too far ahead, you give them a puzzle. I tend to quickly look up a quick puzzle and then put that in and then just let them stew for the next hour and a half whilst I quickly plan ahead. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Um, yeah. One of my... I, I suck at creating puzzles. Um, so I will often resort to looking at what puzzles others have created and putting them in. Look earlier into our conversation with the snakes and ladders, the shoots and ladders uh, puzzle. Um, there's also the 62nd room, which is another favorite of mine. Um, and uh, also just looking at, um, trying to look at, uh, other puzzles and mazes as well. Mazes are a lot of fun to put players through as well. Yeah, for me, when it comes to puzzles, I like them as a player, don't get me wrong. But there is a certain type of puzzle I do like above others as a player and a GM. It's not the physical puzzle. It's the puzzle you put into a story, where you have to find the clues to put all these metaphorical pieces together to see the bigger picture. That's my favorite type of puzzle to do. And don't get me wrong, I'll do tiny puzzles here and there, like last episode, which is the one that came out this morning. We record these a couple days in advance, heads up audience. Um... Yeah, the one that came out this morning, there, y'all got two keys. And uh, the Lady Amelia and Mr. Montague were locked in that cage. Yet neither of the keys worked. But after a little bit of exploring, y'all found the desk, 
and the keyhole that was on the side of the desk. And that's where the real key was. Thankfully, the dice worked in our favor that time. Yeah. <laughs> because we would have been in trouble without that. Mm-hmm. And one thing I didn't tell you all was uh, the DC was ridiculously high for lock picking because it was a magical lock. I, I kind of figured that was going to be the case. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm telling you all that now because it's in the past. Probably won't be relevant in the future unless you decide, oh, hey, there's a bandit camp here. Let's go lock somebody up. <laughs> But, uh, yeah. I mean, worst case, I could have turned into an elephant and just ripped the cage apart. Or a gorilla. Yeah. They both have stupid eye strength. Mm -hmm. Now, do you guys feel like you would enjoy a campaign that has a more bureaucratic aspect to it, where it's more political maneuvering? for the role play than uh, adventuring. So Cameron and I have both played Vampire the Masquerade, which is all about politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I love political stuff because I'm a nutshell when it comes to political stuff. Um, Obviously, it's not everybody's um, cup of tea. Some players just want to just want adventure games, um, and that's perfectly fine. I will throw in a little bit of political stuff for myself as a DM, but the part that I know that my little political part isn't going to be the main thing. The main thing is the players are wanting adventure. They want grand sweeping adventure. So I might include a little thing where it's like, um, okay, the local, um, the king has commanded you to go investigate this local nobleman, uh, this local duke, and why his uh, his um, what I'm looking for life has not been uh, as much. Why is it struggling? And they go there, and it turns out that this area that the Duke is ruling has been hit by a blight of some kind, and the harvest is struggling, and the Duke cannot pay. Because the peasantry are not, not able to make any money, and there's also a rebellion. Mm-hmm. So the Duke will say to them, Look, please help fix my land, and then the grand adventure will be figuring out what caused the area to be blighted. And they'll hear, you know, people talk about, like, Oh, the Duke's done absolutely done nothing for us. All he cares about is taxes. Um, but, but if they, they solve the situation, they get their fun grand adventure. And the, the Duke is able to end up paying his wife and isn't considered to be 
think a story arc should last in a campaign? As long as it takes. As long as it takes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't think there's any answer for that. that. There, there's no that, that timeline story, story arc. arc. You know, some of them, you're just going to do it, so I should figure it out. out. Some, some of them, like, like the one in my high school game, game. I am able to win one year of my, my story arc. arc. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be able to achieve it. It's crazy. So, to kind of put it perspective, my hero was in three weeks of the game. game. She got shot from memory and very successful. When they really broke out, she didn't have a lot of memory. She didn't have that back. That's how it works once we find out as she's finding his memories and all that. And going on and on and on. Figure it out. She actually has to get those things and remember to get her memories back. Which means that you're going to figure out some time shift or something that you're going to control. That was a little story crazy. Because she was changing down the path. All of her friends from the previous game also tried to crystal So her story is. Finding where they find how to get them out. And figuring out how to get them out while keeping them memory lanes intact. So that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. We have found the first crystal. We have not built it up yet because we don't know how to do it without keeping their memories intact. So he's currently stored in the basement of one of our imps. Um, when it comes to doing a game, I've learned that the players set the pace. It's, there's only so much you can do to poke them to go faster before they start going, before it starts becoming a railroad. Um, sometimes, sometimes they're going to be cats, sometimes they're going to be mules. You can't. You can't force them to move as cats. Um, Sometimes they're going to be cats riding mules. Yeah. And even if they are mules, sometimes the cart cartwheel breaks. And they're yep. stuck in place for a minute. Yeah. The only time I will push them is if we end up spending three sessions on the market. Because it's like, guys, I love you. Market should never be more than one session. Yeah. This is now the third session in a row where we're talking about the market. I could see market stretching to maybe a session and a half. Yeah, session and a half. Is maybe. Max. Especially if it's like if a, they're gathering magical items, that too. 
yeah, magical items or gathering information. Because if they're if um, they're gathering information, they're still drive. They're still going along. Yeah. It's also yeah, a great place. Good. Uh, if they're gather, if it's also a great way to drop information about the world that's going on. Is a market because people will merchants will be talking about it. They'll be saying, "Oh no, don't take the northern road. The northern road is full of bandits." Uh, I've heard that nice town east of here. <laughs> yeah. Unintentional. Uh, a number of times I've heard that exact phrase. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you've, what are you doing? You can't leave in you know, the, the full moons in two days' time. Um, and someone always goes missing on a full moon. Um, uh, I would love to be able to, I'd love to be able to pay you, but unfortunately my shipment hasn't arrived yet. Um, there are stories that there is some sort of beast attacking ships on their way to the harbor. Stuff like that. It's a great way to put little things down and, um, players can go, ooh, this could be interesting. Or it could be little lore bits like, uh, did you hear? So-and-so married a commoner. And they fled off into the sunset. Nowhere did you hear about it. Lord Birkenhead? Did you hear about Lord Birkenhead's daughter? She's, she's marrying an orc. <laughs> Quite shocking for the Baron of Amberwood. But aren't they pixies? <laughs> That's... We do, we do not discuss the size difference. <laughs> no comment. But yeah, here's another one. How far into a campaign do you think players... That you should... Oh, let me reword this. How far into a campaign do you think... You, a group should be before player character death becomes a real concern for the players. I think that depends on the players. Yeah. Um, So the reason I don't jam Dungeons and Dragons is because second ed, the one and only time I jammed, I had created a dungeon. I wiped out the party in the first room with a group of kobolds. (laughs) And uh, my ego never recovered from that. So, I run other games now. Uh, But, I mean, if the party is going to be incredibly stupid at level one, like, hey, let's go talk to the dragon. No, no. You you deserve death. Um, But if they're reasonable about it, like, there's this group of kobolds or there's these bandits, Mm -hmm. we should be able to take them if we do this right. Like, Cleared up the possibility, but I don't feel like I should just outright make it happen. Yeah. You know, that's actually, we can look back for a second. Um, That could actually be a really good thing to do on Session Zero. Play out a couple scenarios, see um, uh, how much the group can take before it just becomes a total party kill. And then you could scale it down from there. There is that. Um, it's also, you know, it's going to depend on one party dynamics. Like our group right now, 
part of the reason I went with Circle I did is because between that and my moon uh, side, my healing should be enough to keep us alive as long as we don't do anything incredibly stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank God for Spare the Dying. There's a reason I have uh, healing blood saved as Laya. There's a reason clerics are important people. Uh, and then, yes, yes, there is. Then you all got that paladin. Lay on hands is nothing to scoff at. Yeah, I I think between a lot of us, it's going to take a lot to actually kill anyone in the party. Mm-hmm. Although we did come pretty close. <laughs> but yeah, like I uh, I think if I didn't have the range I did on some of my healing spells, we would have been in trouble. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to... On the flip to... side, once we get a feat, I will be uh, impossible to stop. <laughs> um, spell sniper. Oh, dear. Uh, when it comes to uh, killing a player... I would contest the fact that I don't really do well in judging just how dangerous I can be with some of my traps and tactics. To be fair, it tends to be my players that die, or my PCs that die, and uh, you're a little worried about what's going to happen if you kill my favorite girl. Yes. Uh, But when it comes... I mean, to be fair, sticking a fuel air bomb in a storage locker was probably not the smartest move. Um, but you failed. You didn't check to see if it had been broken into, so... Uh, the I was perfectly fine in that session. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to killing a player in a game, uh, depending on the game as well as the players, like with Call of Cthulhu, I warn the players, just so you know, death is a possibility for your character. Um, we, I don't generally like killing player characters. Uh, the only time I would do it willingly is if the player if is if the big bad evil guy is the one doing it. Mm-hmm. If it's a minion, it doesn't feel it can my big my big fear is if it's the big bad evil guy, it's your character went out in a final blaze of glory. Uh so it's a bit of a bittersweet thing. It's like they died fighting the big bad evil guy they fell at the last moment but they will be remembered as a hero mm-hmm. whereas if whereas if it's just a case of a goblin with a freaking short bow got a lucky hit uh players can feel a little bit ticked off rightly so in my opinion so in lower levels yeah in lower levels I tend to actually 
underestimate, I tend to underestimate the play, underestimate, overestimate the players, I think. Basically, they don't have fights that are going to be potentially dangerous, like the gelatinous cube. It was one cube versus six players. I just find it hilarious the cube never even landed a hit. Um, I, I'm actually not upset about it. I genuinely am not. I love the fact that the party just wiped this cube out in like six seconds. It's hilarious to me. Um, as the players get higher leveled, though, that's when the difficulty rating starts to go up. There was one scenario I had where a group of kobolds had stolen a blacksmith's uh, stock of ready-made swords. Um, and he was working himself to death to try and get back up to the amount he'd made. So the party happily on their own volition, went to investigate. I think the party was about level 4, level 5. They found the kobold cave. Uh, they also found the fire I... giant that the kobolds uh, were trying to sell the swords to as their own make. Oops. Um, right, right, right. When... When the players, the players were like, when the players initiated combat, one of them shouted, you stole those. Uh, they, before they initiated combat, they mentioned that it had been stolen. The fire giant rolled an inside check on them. Passed. Looked at the kobolds. Called them a bunch of thieving liars and left the cave. <laughs> Had that not happened, the fire giant could have joined the kobolds. Yeah. Um, that being said, again, Delta Green, one of the things we tell players going into Delta Green is don't get attached to your character. Characters die. It, it's, it's just. Uh, fact of the game um we're still trying to figure out how my favorite girl has lasted as long as she has like it is unusual usually characters don't last more than 10 sessions or 10 scenarios um i know one player who i think his record is five sessions uh i have killed seven of his characters cam has killed a couple of his characters Matter of fact, I think every GM on that server has killed at least one of his characters. He has more dead characters than I have characters. And that says a lot, because I have a lot of characters. There was one scenario I ran in Delta Green where I think only one person escaped. I'm trying to remember just how many yeah. were killed in that World War II scenario that I ran. The first one, not the second one. Yes, one person got away. There were three players. That's the reason I rerolled my character. Yes. That, that was a dark scenario, though. Yeah. Still, that, that's a scenario that gets discussed privately for one very good reason. 
We we infiltrated a Nazi camp and uh, had to impersonate Nazis. Yes. Needless to say, that came with several trigger warnings. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I still worry about the player who dis- who figured out the big bad evil secret. Did they die? He is uh, special. He is very special. Love the kid, but uh, he terrifies me. We love you. <laughs> he knows who he is. Okay, so you've mm-hmm. talked a little bit about player character deaths as uh, GMs or game masters. How do you handle it as a player? When you lose Honestly, again, I've been, I've been playing so long that characters die. I know this. It's It happens. Um, it is a miracle that my favorite girl has not died. Uh, I still play her from time to time, but she is mostly retired these days simply for the fact that I couldn't bear it if she did die. Um, but she's the only one. The rest of my characters, I, I operate under the understanding that they're eventually going to die. It's going to happen no matter what, especially if I play them long term. Um, most of the time they're reasonable deaths, like, I just went up against something that was a little too bad. I had one of my players, um, she was trying to disarm a bomb, and several bad rolls later, well, AED explodes five feet away from you. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, there was there was one character death that still pisses me off, and that's because it was not my fault or anything that really so my character sacrificed herself to get us inside of a building where a bunch of things were going on. Mm-hmm. In the process, she ended up getting knocked unconscious. The rest of the party got in. And something triggered to make the house implode. We were down in the basement. The last piece to leave intentionally stepped over her unconscious body and left her behind. Despite the GM specifically saying, hey, are you forgetting someone? I refuse to play with that player anymore. Uh, Matter of fact, several people refused to play with him after that session. Yeah. That's, That's just poor etiquette. There's problem players. It happens. Um, he he was, I will say this, he had main player char- uh, main character syndrome. He was constantly butting in, uh, especially, like, at one point my character went for a jog and stuff happened. And when she lets herself get taken, he's like, I'm going to call the handler. And I'm like, dude, you're not even there. You don't know she's been taken out. Let me have my scene. And I think that was the defining moment, because he did not like that I flat out called him out on it. So Cameron, I know it's been a bit since you've been a player. How do you handle player death as a character? Uh, I've not had a character die somehow yet uh 
you realize the next Delta Green scenario you get into now, somebody's going to die, right? <laughs> now that you've yes. said that. Oh, I fully expect it. I mean, I've got one character who is now lost in time and space, but that was my own choice. Um, He's uh, not lost in time and space. Didn't I just run into him a couple scenarios ago? <laughs> yes, and you'll probably run into him again soon. Uh, I'm having trouble processing what you just said. What? Not a single character death? Not yet. I'm out. I mean, I've only uh, had two, but... Dang. This is what happens when you play a cleric. You get to heal yourself. Um. And you watch everyone else die. Exactly. Or you're the cleric, yeah, that, yeah. or you're the cleric that heals too late. Uh, my rule is if you run away from the cleric, your death is your own fault. Yeah. And so many of the games I've been in, uh, in D&D, the players ran away from the cleric. Um, I, uh, I have, um, I've experienced other player characters' deaths, and, um, it's nice to have a little scenario where the players are like, you know, they mourn the character in some way. Um, when I kill off a character, when I kill a character as a DM, um, I do leave a bit of time for players to you know, mourn the loss of that person. Um, we had a player who politely, due to scheduling issues, stepped out of a game of Call of Cthulhu. Um, and I couldn't kill their character. God, the die rolls. They had an assassin <laughs> on a riverboat in Egypt to try and stab them. The assassin couldn't roll for shit. Um, so... They did get an injury and then they got transported to a hospital and then went back to America and then disappeared. Um, that's how we eventually did it. Um, players finished the scenario in Egypt, went back to Arkham, got back and got told um, that the player character was missing mm -hmm. uh, because that's how we were going to rule the character of stepping out. It's like, do you mind if I have your character go missing? And the player was like, oh, go right ahead. That's spectacular. Um, so we had them record a little audio message and the players went to the lawyers to have the will read. And we played the audio recording at the will reading because one of the players uh, was playing his, um, uh, sorry, his uh, um, niece, and they had left all the <coughs> all their character's possessions to the niece. Mm -hmm. And that was a fun moment of spectacular roleplay on everybody's part. Um, yeah. They actually pinged the player who popped in 
uh, because they loved that little sentiment of the audio playing and they hear the final words of the player. Um, so one thing that I also like to do for any player character death is to give them that Shakespearean moment of you are dead, what are your character's final words? Yeah. Um, yeah, on my part, there's there's a couple of things uh, as a player. So, spoiler alert for Sorry Honey. Um, the, the last PC that I had before I left the show, she sacrificed herself so the rest of the team could do what needed to be done. Uh, yeah, and she was not a character I was terribly attached to, but she was one that I had designed with the long term in mind. And then we hit a point where I'm like, okay, either she dies or something bad's going to happen. So I let her die. Um, on the other hand, my favorite girl, uh, Rowan, she she has seen a lot of death. A lot of friends die. A lot of other PCs die. A lot of NPCs that she's attached, she die. Um, and one of the things we do with her is she's got several tattoos. And every time somebody she cares about dies, she adds to those tattoos. And those are canon. Uh, just as her way of saying, yes, people die. Now, for this next question, we're going to go uh, way off topic. Um, uh, <laughs> during a flashback scene or sequence as a DM, how do you give your players agency during said flashback? So, personally, I treat flashbacks as mini-scenarios. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not my job to tell them exactly what happened in that flashback unless they're third party. If a player is involved in a flashback, if it is a player's flashback, it is their job to tell me what happened, not the other way around. I don't know how that character thinks and acts or how they would have thought and acted during that time period. So I let the player run the show. Very similar mo uh, action to what Amber just said. If the player's having a flashback, then it's up to them to tell me what to do. Um, if the characters are having an encounter, like if they've gone to sleep and they're having a dream, it's up to them to decide how to act with the dream. Um, the only time I will ever take agency is if in that dream it is to introduce a new plot point. So, for example, having the cleric to Salune have a dream where she encounters Salune and Salune talks to her. Um, or the one player who whose uh, tribe is being taken over by another deity and to have that deity contact them and say, 
You're going to be with us soon. But the players decide how to how that will play out. Does the cleric of Salune listen to the deity? Do they step aside and not take heed of of their deity's warning? Does the player whose tribe is falling start to maybe pretend to listen to what this false god is saying? Or are they outright going to be hostile towards it and tell it to fuck off? That's how that will... I will introduce the scenario I will, in the same way that I would introduce the flashback. It's like your character wakes up you wake, uh, your character is um, in the fields where they grew up and they can hear their name being called by their mother. I'm not going to tell them what's happening afterwards. It's up to them to decide how to go about in this dream, in this flashback. And then just roll with it from there. Yeah, I can. I get what you're saying there. Yeah. Essentially, making it to where. Yeah, this may have happened in the past, but it's not written in stone for us, so they can go do whatever they want with the scenario given to them, unless, of course, they're third partying a flashback. Yeah. 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 Now, I've got one last question. A little bit of more of a lighthearted question that I ask everybody who's on here for the first time. So, Amber, what is your ideal snack and drink during a session? Uh, you know what? I So I always tend to have either hot chocolate or tea on hand. Uh, and I drink a lot of Pepsi, I will admit, but I also drink a lot of water. Um, there's actually a mini fridge sitting right beside me, so I've constantly got drinks. As for snacks, it really depends on how I'm feeling. Uh, I do a lot of fruit, uh, so melons, strawberries, stuff like that, or chocolate. Chocolate is always acceptable. Now, for me, I've got my little goodie bag drawer of snacks in my desk, and I also have my mini fridge, which is back there now. Probably going to have to move it up here at some point, but... And that's usually full of tea, like iced tea and maybe a couple sodas. But in the snack drawer, I usually have a bag of mixed nuts. <laughs> nice. And it's about 50% almonds. And to me, that's my ideal snack because it's that little bit of protein to help me get through like a very long session or, well, just a very talky session. Because they really won't get my hands broken. Beef jerky is good, too. Yeah. Speed of which I got myself some beef jerky recently. Can't wait. Now. I like the South African version of Biltong. Biltong, yes. I, I think I've heard this discussion. Biltong is not beef jerky. No, it's better. Matter of fact, weren't you ranting at your roommate about that just, like, two days ago? 
Yeah. He was ranting about it in the first episode, I think. But I asked him the question. <laughs> and yet he didn't bring me any when he came to visit. Wow. Customs. Oh, yeah. You could still bring a little it's bit. A, like a bag or two. It would have let that through. Nope, it's not it's like a, it's a fleet. Yeah, there's certain there's certain limits for perishables, isn't there? I also would have to find a place that does it properly, and the nearest place that does it is a good distance away, unfortunately. All right, also, so I'm waiting until we go to South Africa. <laughs> also, love, I was broke, remember? Also, it would not have survived the flight. I would have had it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the real reason. Yeah. He would have eaten it all. No, he did eat it all. He's just making the excuse. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Uh, that's why I gave the hard sound to the United crew. Uh, not sponsored. Well, that's all for this episode of Behind the Screen, Goblins and Gremlins. I'd like to thank my lovely guests for joining us today. And as always, this is the Penmeister signing off. Thank <music> you.